0: when I'm just looking around the room for someone else like me, cause it's almost just like, okay, you know, like I just, I'm preparing myself for one to make sure that um, I don't say anything that may be perceived in a different way because I'm black. Um, and two, I just want to make sure, you know, if, if there is another black person in the room, I just automatically just, I breathe easier, I don't know, like it's hard to explain.
1: Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
2: And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
1: It's hard to believe, Julie, but this is our season finale for Season 5. I know. Woohoo. <laughs> I don't know where the time goes. It seems like we just launched this season, and here we are ending it. And this actually will be our 61st episode. Yeah, and we're still having such a good time. We are. We really enjoy it. And I want to just give, for for the season, one last final plug. If you haven't done so already, it would be really helpful if you could go onto iTunes and give us a rating and a review. If you're not subscribed on SoundCloud or on whatever podcast app you use, please consider doing that. That would really help us out. So we're not exactly sure when we'll be back with Season 6, but we will be back. Absolutely. Sometime. And we've already got some ideas there. And before we end the season, we want to just take a second to thank the wonderful Jordan Furlong, who has been our guest news correspondent for these last three episodes and has done such a fabulous job. And we encourage you to stay tuned for the entire episode to hear his last news segment at the end of this episode. Apparently he is not opposed to maybe making another guest appearance. An occasional guest
2: appearance. That's right. So Jordan, thank you so much. It's been such fun to work with you and may it long continue whenever we can.
1: Before we kind of get into the main topic of uh, today's episode, we just want to take a second to let you know about a fundraising campaign that we have just launched that we are calling our hashtag Justice for all campaign the nsrlp could really use uh some help financially so we're asking you to consider donating Um, we're also asking you if you can if you can't donate you could go onto our social media feeds and share the information that we are providing about this campaign, which includes some really great videos from people who we are calling our champions who are talking about what the NSRLP means to them and the work that we do. Uh, so if you are interested in donating, you can go to nsrlp.com donate. And
2: every little bit helps. But as Dana says, we're also relying on our community to send out these wonderful little short one-minute videos that our Mm. champions are making, champions inside and outside the justice system, talking about why NSROP is important.
1: So on to the main topic of the episode today, um, which we did give a little preview for in our last episode with the other news segment, we felt that it was really important to prepare an entire episode around the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, This is an issue that we feel very strongly about, all of us here at the NSRLP. We want to, again, state unequivocally that we stand with the Black Lives Matter movement. This is such an important movement for our time right now. So we wanted to provide an opportunity to give you a little bit more information about that through the voices of some of the Black people in our community. And Julie will talk about that a little bit more in a second. But before she does, we just want to encourage you to um, make a difference Again, you can financially, Um, we will be listing on the website some really great organizations, Canadian organizations, that are supporting the Black Lives Matter movement that you can donate to. Um, And one in particular we want to mention is the Black Legal Action Centre. They're doing wonderful work, uh, but there are many other organizations, and we will list some of those on our website.
2: And so we decided we wanted to give our listeners an opportunity to hear something about the personal experiences of black people that we know growing up here in Canada because it really seemed to us that it's also been one of the most important parts of the Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter movement and also it fits completely with what we try to do in this podcast where we try to bring you people's personal account of their lives Mm -hmm. and what makes a difference to them and we are so honoured to be able to turn to two very good friends. And also we wanted to do something in this podcast to give people some practical ideas for what you might do. I think this is a time when a lot of us feel we really need some direction on what can we do to be supportive, to be helpful. And so we have a second segment after the two main interviews in the podcast today, which is things that you can do. Just very short pieces, which hopefully will give you some ideas.
1: First person that you're going to hear from, we didn't have to go very far to find. <laughs> Julie had a really, really great conversation with our wonderful communications manager, Moya McAllister, who is, along with Julie and I, she is kind of the third major moving force at the MSRLP. Yeah. We absolutely love Moya. She's amazing. And without her, a lot of what we do wouldn't be continuing. Uh, but Moya has really been in the last number of weeks really speaking up a lot and we're so, we're so proud of her for that she's been asked to speak in a lot of capacities in the last number of, of weeks one of the things that she's also been doing has been working with a group of black women in the Windsor community and they have formed a group called black women for forward action and we're really excited to see what comes of that in the coming
2: years? And our second guest, we also didn't have to look very far for, because he's a longtime friend of the project, and that is Anthony Morgan. Anthony is someone who's very well known as a racial justice educator and a lawyer in the community. He is now the head of Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit at the City of Toronto. He talks to me about what this means for him on a personal level and what it means to him in his family life. And I think that the stories that he and Moya tell in the next few minutes are going to move you very, very much. Mm -hmm. And they're also going to give you, we hope, a real sense of what is at stake here as we want to stand shoulder to shoulder with our Black friends and colleagues.
0: I actually am one of the fortunate ones. I had I had privileges I feel that a, a lot of people, you know, not only just black people but white people, asian people, there's any type of person, I had had really great parents that were educated, really well educated. My mother decided to come to Canada. She wanted to come to Canada to go to school. She wanted to come to Canada to do something. She was working in, you know, hospitals in Trinidad and went to Ryerson when she moved here. She always worked and usually a couple jobs. She worked for Children's Mm -hmm. Aid. She did all this stuff and got into social work. So her thing was always about helping people. But, you know, for us, for my sister and I, she always ingrained in her head that no matter what, things are going to be hard for you. So you need to excel. You have to go above and beyond and you have to play the game. And I've actually been talking a lot to you know, other, uh, other you know, friends and family who are black about you know, how you play this game and what that game looks like. Well, tell me uh, about it. The way you speak. My mom is from Trinidad. She has a very thick Trini accent. But you only hear it. I only hear it when she's around family. Only. So and it would be
2: dangerous to show that that yeah, accent. It was
0: something that she she said differently. she wasn't like everyone else in Canada. She's tried. She was one of those, you have to be so Canadian. You have to make everyone feel so comfortable. So don't do anything <laughs> that... Might put someone off and that's how we you know, that's how we were raised both my sister My sister was the one who rebelled. I mean she had tattoos She she had dreads and all this stuff and my mom was so scared for her all the time because she was like How are you gonna get a job? How are people going to look at you? Seriously, if you you know continue along this route and and it really and they have a lot of fights because of it
2: Were you the good girl?
0: Um, Yeah, I was. I was the one that, you know, all the schools I were in, predominantly white. Uh, I was in French immersion. I went as far as I pretty much only dated white men. And I didn't have a lot of connection to the Black community for a while. And it was my dad who really pushed it. He was the one is like, okay, if she's playing piano, she's got to play the steel drum. She needs to be around Black people that aren't just her family and she needs to have those connections
2: so when you look back on those years when Mm -hmm. you were playing the game and being Mm -hmm. the good girl unlike nikki (laughs)
0: yes
2: (laughs) what do you feel about that now you know was that that you put yourself into that place to Mm -hmm. try to be safe
0: sometimes i put on this front all the time you know um i am i am constantly worried that if i say something that is out of character for what people perceive me as, that I won't be maybe trusted, I won't be respected, I won't be listened to. I also felt like, can I get angry? Because I don't want that perception to be put on me for being too angry at something, you know? Like it's just,
2: it's- Always having to be careful. Yeah. I remember not that long after I first met you, you told me that every time you walk into a room and you said you couldn't really remember when this wasn't the case, every time you walk into a room, you do a quick scan of the faces in the room to see if there are any black faces. Mm -hmm. And as I repeat this story now, I mean, I feel, you know, so completely clueless about the fact that that was so shocking to me to hear you say that. Can you say a bit more about that and other things that you felt have affected the way that you behave going mm-hmm.
0: forward mm-hmm. I think for me it's it's because I was put into so many situations where I was always always one or two of the black people right. in the room I was I wanted to be uh, in the Toronto Children's Chorus because it's one of the best choirs in Toronto it was so crazy because. There was myself and uh, a brother and sister, and they were both from Africa. The parents were one. The mother was a doctor. The father was a lawyer. And that was the three of us out of a group of 75 singers. And. It was just, I was so used to that. Like that, to me, I was just like, oh my God, I got, I was chosen. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I am the token. Yay, <laughs> you know. Can
2: I just ask you about one other story you told me? Because I think this story would have a big impact on people listening. Because it's something
0: mm-hmm.
2: me and Dana when you told us this, which was only a week or so ago.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. I'm talking about when you were six years old, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah, so... We, we always used to do Sunday dinners. That was a big family thing for us, especially for everyone that, you know, moved from Trinidad here. Um, and my parents always hosted. Uh, so it was all our cousins, our aunts and uncles. I have a huge family, so it was always a lot of people. But it was just like this one night after dinner, all the kids, every single one, didn't matter how young, how old, they all had to come and sit at the table. And all the adults just had this talk with us the main talk was about you know how our our skin color is going to have challenges for us and we need to know what to do in different situations and that's when they brought up you know if we had to be in you know a, if a, if we had any communications with a top, with a cop um, what we needed to do right. and they made everybody at that table even 6 year old me put our hands on the table. Everybody had to. And we're all like, why are we doing this? They're like, always, always make sure that the cops see your hands. Do not make any sudden movements. Don't reach for anything, but make sure your hands are visible to them at all times because you do not want them to get the wrong impression or to think that you're going for something that you're not going for. Like, you just need to make sure and be safe because you want to make it out of there alive. And they wanted to make that. That was, it was just so shocking to me that we needed to have this conversation. And, you know, they, they were so scared. You can see the fear in their eyes, especially to my male, you know, cousins. And it just, it, it just kind of put so much, it just put so much into perspective for me. Um, It kind of reminded me that, yes, uh, I may feel extremely comfortable, you know, in in the programs and schools and everything like that, that I was in, but there's still this part that that I still need to be cautious of. I still have to have this caution. And I don't, that's never left me. I'm always kind of on the lookout for things. So when you, when I tell you, you know, I'm, I just have like a quick glance. It's, it's just habit. I don't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm just looking around the room for someone else like me, it's almost just like, okay, you know, like I just, I'm preparing myself for one, to make sure that I don't say anything that may be perceived in a different way because i'm black and two i just want to make sure you know if if there is another black person in the room i just automatically just i breathe easier i don't know like it's hard to explain but it just yeah it gives me some kind of calm
2: perfectly and i think that we should just leave that story at that because it's an incredibly shocking idea of all these little kids with you there with their hands on the table being told to be careful yeah. Thanks, Maya.
3: Thank you.
4: Yeah, so I had a, a range of experiences because of the work that I've committed to doing to try to create broader spaces for, for what I like to call Black freedom or Black liberation or just well-being for Black communities. I've, I've thought about my experiences a lot in, in different ways. And through my time, uh, it's it, one of the, the quotes that sticks uh, with me, it's not from a black author or writer, but it's an adaptation of a, a quote from a philosopher, Jean Jacques Rousseau. Um, man is born free, but he is everywhere in chains. And thinking about the experience of being a black man, there's a sense of, at this time, like you're born free, but you are everywhere in chains. So it doesn't matter if I'm a black lawyer or I'm a parent or doesn't matter if I'm, do, I'm innocent, people when they see me, they see a large black man. And so I could, I could access spaces of privilege because uh, being a lawyer or uh, because of the work that I'm doing now at the city of Toronto, but there's still that, that level of being, being chained or that sense of being chained. Not because blackness is inherently restrictive, but because the way in which it's read in society tends to be quite restrictive. So the assumptions, stereotypes, ideas about who I am, who I'm not, the things that I like and, and don't like. The other experiences that were very common for me as a, as a young person, I'm talking about it as a, as, a, as a grown man now, but it's shaped my experience for as long as I could think critically about, about my experience. I just didn't recognize it as such. So uh, when people would make jokes, whether it be about rap music or about chicken and food. At the time, I would laugh along thinking that, oh, this is just, this is playful banter. But I, I grew up to understand that, oh, it's because I am Black that this is a point of reference. This is a kind of bridge or people who were who just mean, were just trying to be uh, mean and, and were just outright uh, racist, internalizing racism that they'd seen on TV or internalized. TV or in their homes or other social circles. So yeah, that, that quote really, really sticks with me. I'm, I should say though, I'm extremely proud to, to be Black because of the history and tradition of resistance and resilience of our people, uh, the, the things that we've come against uh, and fought and continue to fight for, uh, the, to be a, a part of that tradition is, is beautiful. It, it can be painful when you really read into some of the things that our people have gone through just by virtue of being people of African descent. That's sad, and and it certainly makes me think, for instance, about about my my daughter. Kids are sponges, so they're always taking in the world, but there's still a level at which she's still removed from understanding what might be referred to as the whips and scorns of of, of racism as they manifest within our society. And not only, of course, is she black, but she's a black girl. We know that the experiences of black women and black girls uh, there's, a, there's an added level of Absolutely. being devalued, uh, being exposed to harm and um, folks not taking you seriously uh, and, and trying to, to violate you in, in different ways. And so I, I'm always thinking about how, is, as her dad, I'm working uh, with her mom uh, in different ways so that we can create the, the, the biggest space for her, knowing that this world is already, because of how it is, going to be a challenge to navigate uh, different in, in different ways.
0: How, how, how would you like your daughter
2: to grow up with a different consciousness than the one that you're describing when you grew up, which was more about trying to laugh along with the jokes, just kind of accepting that these were people's stereotypes. You don't want your daughter to grow up that way. So what, what do you want her to grow up?
4: How do you want her to grow up differently? That's a great question. Uh, I would like her to grow up with a sense that anything is possible. I think any parent wants to, wants their child to feel like even if there are barriers, I, I'm not better than anybody, but I'm special. And so I can, I, I can do these things. I can be an engineer. I can be an actress. I can do what my, my dad's doing, or I could not. It's just the world of, that's open and available to me, or I could do what my mom is doing and, and not. Um, I, I want her to have that sense that these are, the world is really open to her. She doesn't feel that sense of being chained. Uh, she won't have that sense of self doubt. That's my, my hope that that can come along with being treated in anti-black ways. You start to doubt your own abilities and sense of self, and even the realities that you're experiencing. Like, did that really happen, or, or am, I, am I thinking something else or misreading? So my, my biggest hope is that I, I can, as she grows and she develops, and we, she, she's starting uh, to, to really deepen her vocabulary now, so there's, there's sentences that she can form and things that she can say, and it's a beautiful journey. To see that and but again as a parent and a dad it, it was also makes me scared because then there's also as she awakens uh in her own senses as she develops there's also that level of slowly coming out into the world she'll be able to see more things and, and to pick up and there are studies that show that as early as as three the kids start to recognize the difference of uh, how people are treated on the basis of race and internalize that and they get they learn that from the messages that are sent to them or they internalize through media, television, conversations their parents have, relationships their parents have, uh, and the people around them have. And so all of this is to say my, my, my biggest hope is to try to be very mindful and conscious of those things and try to give the strongest foundation because as any parent will try to give the ch- their child the world, there's just things that you, you have to – uh, also recognize you can't protect them from. Uh, the best thing you can do is kind of prepare them for some of the realities of the existence that they're going to face, whatever that whatever that looks like.
2: So you're hoping she's going to grow up into a different world, but you're also trying to prepare her for the realities of the current world. It sounds like.
4: Yeah, uh, and I and actually I think that's how, in an interesting way, how my parents uh, raised raised me.
2: Yeah, thinking more about that, because I'm really struck by what you've said, and a number of my black friends have said this in the last few weeks when we've been having these deeper conversations, this feeling of self-doubt that dogs you, even when you are, as you are, Anthony, in this position of, you know, status.
4: <laughs> it, it's just it's just a phenomenon. It's real. So no matter how, how, how brilliant, ambitious, connected uh, you are, if you don't see ongoing or current representations of yourself in positions of influence of power or or value in society there's a the human part of one of oneself it's just natural that you start to think even if I do everything right the chances of me getting to a particular position or or reaching a, a particular goal is 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 slim to none and if I have uh, four other black friends, young black men who are friends who are also hardworking and they, they're they intelligent people, they're responsible, they're committed uh, family people. If I've got these four friends who are also vying for a, in a similar direction, but what I'm seeing is that there's usually only one or two black folks who ever get this position. Then that again creates that sense of self-doubt. Like We can't all make it of saying that, oh, we, we can be as ambitious and as as, like I said, uh, committed to achieving certain things, but because of who really controls power, it's not black people or people who've lived experiences uh, where they've experienced some of the the, the challenges of, of, of being a, a black person that they won't fully understand. And they might see us coming together, moving in a certain direction, as literally a threat. And that's also part of what the challenge of black Living as a black person is when you, when you organize with other black folks and you decide, hey, let's try to build something together. Uh, when you are able to find that space, what tends to, be, what tends to happen is that society reads that, uh, people in power read that as a threat. And that's part of the, the experiences of, of enslavement. I think there, we don't have enough uh, conversations about what slavery did to our collective psyches. And why say that, while I'm saying that, I'm, I'm hearing some of the voices that, that folks often, uh, or that some things folks sometimes say is we talk about slavery way too much. The history of black people uh, predates slavery and it absolutely does. We had thriving kingdoms, civilizations, organized communities and, and territories that, that were governed for black people for well before slavery was established. That said, the ways in which Black communities continue to experience differential treatment is directly linked to the phenomena and the experiences and the centuries-old experience of enslavement of people of African descent on these lands. Canada, we know, officially uh, came into play as the Dominion of Canada in 1867. We're now in the year 2020. Uh, so we know it's uh, 150 uh, three years when we're talking about the experience of enslavement on these same lands that Canada now claims, that started in eight, in, at least in 1628, with uh, the documented arrival of a, an enslaved boy by the name of Olivier Lejeune, and well, he, that he was baptized into that name. He had an African name; that was not his name. And then slavery doesn't officially leave legally these same lands until the year 1834. So that's 206 years. 206 years of the practice of legally enslaving people of African descent versus Canada only being 153 years. So of course we have to have an ongoing, honest, real courageous conversation about slavery because it existed here longer than Canada existed here. Negative feelings towards black people that could uh, justify and excuse the practice of enslavement for more than two centuries. It's
2: going to take a lot for us to exercise that. Hussein Ali is a criminal defense lawyer in Toronto with Rosanick and Partners. He has an awesome reputation, described on the firm's website as consistently incredible. Hussein is a member of the Canadian Muslim Lawyers Association, and he's going to talk about some work he's doing currently with that organization and the Black Muslim Initiative. So Hussein, could you tell me a little bit about this session that you're organizing, which I think is the first of a couple, and what the goal is of that session? The session has
5: been put on by uh, the Black Muslim Initiative and uh, the Canadian Muslim Lawyers Association. It's a Know Your Rights seminar. Uh, It's designed at informing or allowing members of the public to access information that will help them, you know, peacefully protest and for them to know their rights during that time.
2: And what would you hope that somebody who listens into that would get out of it? I mean, it's obviously not going to be, you know, a magic passport to not having any issues with policing. But what are you hoping it will help people to do? Uh, I hope it will just uh, allow them to to have a fundamental or
5: a a basic understanding of their rights and also the the sessions aimed at really uh, injecting a bit of reality into the equation because uh, you may know your rights and you may have these rights, but theoretically or in practice they may not be implemented. So I think it's important for people to know what they are, possibly be able to assert their rights that may get them out of a situation. But I think ultimately part of the session is also going to be I think you have to understand uh, your limitations so you don't cause yourself to do anything that could legitimately get you in trouble. But it should also, the, the session's also aimed at uh, letting people know that even if you aren't doing anything, uh, you may still get in trouble. And I think you have to make a decision as to how far you're willing to go uh, with your protest uh, while you're there. You know, there's, there are many protesters who go there to get arrested. There are some people there who don't go there to get arrested, but are willing to get arrested. And there's other people who would like to avoid that at all costs. So right. I think it's important for people to know all those things before they participate so they can have a clear mind so they don't have to make decisions on the fly.
2: So as a defense lawyer, do you find that somebody being able to say to a police officer that they're interacting with that they understand that they have some rights, that that helps them, that that empowers them in, in some way? Uh, I, I think it does. I think it all comes down to
5: um, how accurately and how polished your delivery is. I think that is true, really, with uh, in any really interaction between, uh, like, let's say, a professional and a non professional. The person demonstrates some insider information. Right. Like, like, let's say they're speaking with a lawyer. Like, with lawyers and doctors, I assume, get a lot of situations where, you know, individuals have gone on the internet and found information. And a lot of times what they say demonstrates their ignorance. But a lot of times or sometimes somebody will come in there and they'll have a, a good, polished, nuanced delivery uh, and that will make you think, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. So I think that if you can assert your rights properly with the police, you know, you may inject uh, a little bit of a fear for the police. Uh, and when I say fear, I mean, they may think you're a, a lawyer or somebody who can cause them problems that right. you have, you know, the, the social capital to, to really make them pay if, if anything goes uh, wrong during the interaction.
2: Right. Tell me why you decided, Hussein, to do this as a member of the Muslim Lawyers Group as well. Why why was it important for you to put on this session? And I understand there's going to be a couple of these coming up, and we'll obviously post the link on the podcast page so people can join if they want to. But tell me about why you're doing this.
5: I think it was a good cross between both the Muslim community and the Black Muslim Initiative to really acknowledge and start speaking about anti-black racism that exists in all communities, uh, including the Muslim community, obviously a very diverse community, uh, includes people from every country in the world. So yes. the, the issues that are plaguing the anti-racism issues that are plaguing uh, the rest of society, uh, you know, it's not like the, the Muslim community is immune from that. So I think it's important uh, to assist those uh, initiatives uh, and help in any way possible to address anti-black racism.
2: Anna Salal is a research assistant with the NSRLP and a master's student at the Faculty of Law University of Windsor. Anna has studied and worked in Ghana and in South Africa and her family live in Minneapolis. We are very grateful to have Anna as part of our team.
3: So there aren't a lot of things that all of us can do sometimes because maybe we don't have available funds, funds to contribute. and do big things but there are little things that all of us can do one way or another and little things do add up to make big things because little drops of water do make a mighty ocean. One thing that I think can really help is social media. So social media is a main contributing factor to this uproar that we are seeing now. Social media creates awareness, social media has created an unveiling and has opened the eyes of people and you don't even need to create your own post. There are so many people out there creating very good content, and you can just retweet it. You can just share it on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snapchat. There are so many outlets now, and the beauty of the 21st century is that we all have access to social media, and the unveiling of all of this allows people to be less disingenuous. People can't pretend anymore. People can just be performative. It creates some form of Action. We are are asking for action, and you can do that through social media. The second thing is supporting Black owned businesses. I think capitalism has uh, such a negative connotation sometimes because big corporations are the ones that enjoy the benefits because they have a leg up with politics and all of that. But I think capitalism can be a benefit to all of us and to small scale businesses. So When you just want to buy a cupcake or you want to um, purchase something, just look for Black-owned businesses around you and support them in one way or another.
2: And we should be posting some links on the podcast page with some suggestions of Black-owned businesses that people can choose to support. Thank you, Anna. Finally, Hope Moon grew up in Kingsville, Ontario, and is now a student at the University of King's College, Halifax, studying environmental science and contemporary studies, where she is the VP External of the Student Union. She describes her experience of setting up a Facebook page to talk about anti-black racism. Full disclosure, she's my youngest daughter.
6: I set up this page, this like Facebook group, because where I'm from is very majority white community. There are a handful of people of color, and I'm one of them. And of those people of color, very few are black. And I think it's really important to make that distinction when we're talking specifically about anti black racism yep. and my role in this creation of this group. While I had suffered like my own experiences of racism in this largely white community, yeah, I'm a person of color but I'm not I'm not black. And so it's still I believe my responsibility as a non black person of color to rein in the people that I can so that I can serve to bridge the gap in any way possible of entering the world of people with different lived experiences.
2: So the Facebook group is aiming to have what kinds of conversations that didn't take place when you were growing up in this community?
1: The Facebook
6: group is specifically just to foster a sense of common goals and common awareness, because I know when I was growing up, hear the minute I would say anything about any justice issue people would just roll their eyes and be like oh it's just hope going off about this again you know they would just be super dismissive and so I think I made this group primarily to address the fact that I actually was seeing much more engagement with these issues um, from people that I was surprised to see engagement from. Um, and I wanted to kind of capture that energy and, and bottle it into a place that could, could produce more of that within other parts of the community. I read a really interesting uh, article recently about how even though these groups are starting, so you're seeing, seeing a lot of book clubs starting, you're seeing a lot of film clubs starting, um, as well as just community groups like mine that have that have started to try to like facilitate conversations. But I think what's really important to remember is while non-black people are starting all these groups to learn, black people are still struggling every single day. This blog post that I saw or article or whatever, was really interesting because it was saying like, as soon as you get comfortable in your learning um, about these works, about racism, about what you're doing, As your book club, as your community group, you have dropped the ball. You should not be comfortable at any moment. That is a point of privilege to be able to be comfortable in your learning about people's oppression. I think that people feel quite intimidated by entering into spaces where they don't understand the language because sometimes it's really high class jargon or it's simply the fear of being called ignorant and then therefore racist you know there's a lot of fear there's a lot of shame to unpack and I think what's really important is that we get out of that shame and we hold each other while we learn together in the process of unlearning racism because if we're all sitting in our own shame then we're not doing anything and actually no one's getting better
7: Hello and welcome to In Other News. I am your temporary fill-in host, Jordan Furlong, for the third of my uh, three appearances here at the end of the season. And we've got a few articles to share with you today, not so much news necessarily, but more articles and opinion pieces with some very interesting insights with regard to access to justice. First of these comes from a website called The Markup, and the title is How Fair Is Zoom Justice? and and as we know of course because of the pandemic many court hearings have now been held remotely and While that has uh, been a good thing in many respects, there's also a lot of unintended consequences. One of the points the article makes is back in 2009, uh, in Chicago, for a brief period of time, a a whole bunch of video hearings were held for for criminal matters in particular, for bail hearings and sentencing and so forth. And what they found when they studied the results afterwards was that there was a 51% increase, on average, in the amount of bail that was set when they conducted video felony bail hearings. And uh, even, even further, they found that sentences given out to people convicted of crimes were also disproportionately uh, longer than when the defendant or the convicted uh, individual was appearing in person in front of the judge. And this isn't really surprising in a way, because there's all sorts of literature out there that says that when a person only appears in front of you on a, on a video screen, you know, just like two-dimensional, just their head and shoulders and so forth, it is much easier to dehumanize them again accidentally it's not something you set out to do but they they seem less real and they and it's when it's a flesh and blood individual in front of you then it's a different a different sense and you connect with that person in a different way but when you're just a picture on a screen uh, and there's a list of crimes or a list of accusations against you it's much easier to dismiss the person and only pay attention to the alleged crimes and you see the same thing happen in refugee hearings the same thing happened in asylum seeking and so forth and what this really reminds us is that no matter how temporary we, uh, we may consider this shift to video uh, hearings and so forth, we also have to consider that there are significant negative effects that happen when we take away that in-person human element. And that actually segues kind of nicely into the next piece uh, on the list, which is from a lawyer website called Law360. And the title is Unauthorized Practice of Law Rules Promote Racial Injustice. And again, this is a, a pretty persuasive article by a man named Rohan Pavaluri. He's actually a legal technology company founder. Um, but he, he makes the points that all the rules that... Legal regulators have against you can't practice law unless you're a lawyer, have uh, unintended uh, impacts, negative impacts on persons of color, and in particular in the American context against African Americans. And he looks at it from a couple of different angles. He says, first, uh, he says, which group of people disproportionately has access to three years and more than $100,000 of grad school education? Well, Take a look at the, at the numbers. The net worth of a typical white family in the United States is nearly 10 times higher than that of a black family. So as he says, no surprise, only 5% of lawyers are black. So there's a lot of systemic racism built into the, the very law school system that we take that most lawyers take for granted. But he says that it's, it's also on the other end, on the consumer end, because when you bar anybody who isn't a lawyer from providing legal services, you artificially inflate the, uh, the, the price of legal services, you increase the scarcity of it, and, and again, as he says, which group of people cannot afford the legal help they need. Uh, it is disproportionately in that states uh, people of colour and, and black people. So it is a, uh, and it's a really important point that I think regulators have to keep in mind, that when we talk about systemic racism, this is the kind of stuff that we actually mean, right? It is stuff that is woven into the systems in ways that, again, most of, not all, but most of the people who uh, administer the systems aren't aware of and wouldn't condone intentionally if they knew it. But then when faced with this reality, then you say, well, look, you you got to do something about this. You have to understand the systemic problem here and start a uh attacking it at a systemic basis in turn that leads into the third article uh, from a magazine called the democracy journal well i guess it's an online magazine now as most most of them are and this is kind of interesting it's called how the law harms public health and, and this is interesting because it's, it's particularly from an American perspective, because as, as you will be aware, there, the social safety net in the United States is much thinner and more threadbare and smaller than it is here in Canada. Not that it's all that hot here in Canada either. We could certainly and should certainly do something to, to increase uh, the degree to which we provide assistance to people who are having difficulties. But in the American context, as, as this article makes clear, the cultural paradigm, the legal paradigm is all around individual responsibility. Uh, it's, everything's on your own shoulders. And if you're in trouble, well, it's your own fault. And if you can't get out of trouble, well, that's your own fault too and and the article makes a case for shifting away from this individual responsibility especially driven by the pandemic to a, an idea of social solidarity that you know really in systemic terms making real this uh, this kind of cliched statement that we keep hearing we're all in this together well that's nice for you to say that but you know what most of us aren't all in all this together you know most of us are in the same boat but some of us are not and it's kind of funny, right, because I've, I've I traveled to the United States, or I used to back in the day, uh, fairly frequently. And, and I remember commenting to a friend of mine there one time, I said, there's two things that I see advertised in the United States that I never see advertised in Canada. And one of them is judges, uh, because they run for office there in many areas and positions. And the other is hospitals. <laughs> the idea that a hospital is, is, a, is a private sector matter and you want, and hospitals are competing against each other for you to go to them as, as a patient. And that's just a different way to set your society up. And I'm not here to say one is better, one is worse, but I'm kind of glad I'm in the one that I'm in here in Canada. So those are three, you know, not really fun articles to think about or to, go to, or, or to deal with. And it's a little, you know, it's a little discouraging in a lot of ways. So the last piece I want to give you is, is a bit more upbeat. And this is an article uh, from Bloomberg Law. It's an opinion piece. It's called Redesign the Legal System for More Than Just Lawyers. And it's co-written by uh, a law school dean from Brigham Young University uh, Law School in Utah, as well as by the CEO of a legal tech company, which is kind of a spin-off of a major law firm. And it makes a really good point, I think, which which we need to think about a lot more often. They They say, look, The legal system is designed for lawyers. By lawyers and for lawyers, this is what we do, okay? And in the same way, courts and courthouses and the court system is designed for judges, but none of it is designed for the people who are on the business end, the receiving end of all of these matters, right? And and they make the case here that it's time for us not to think about what are some small uh, tweaks we can make to the legal system to make it work a little better. It's like, no, we need to, to stop and reconsider. Maybe we need to plan this whole thing again over from the start. And maybe we need to reconceive the law uh, and the legal system away from this is an expert system that only people with tons of training and tons of money and tons of privilege can actually make their way through and navigate but that it is set up for the people who actually need it and i think that is not just the right approach to take i feel this is what's actually growing i think there is a real groundswell. it is slow and it is maybe not quite as fast as we might like but i do think it is very broad-based and and wide-reaching and I think we're going to see that starting this year, starting this summer, we're going to start to see that groundswell increase. And we're going to start seeing a legal system designed for the people who need it, not for the people who work in it. That's my hope. That's my positive take on uh, all these trying times we're going through. And that is where I am happy to leave you. Thank you very much for tuning in to uh, my replacement stint in this position. And I hope you have an excellent summer wherever this recording finds you.